to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Book of Hebrews, chapter 12. As an old man, looking back at his life, Malcolm Muggeridge observed, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, everything I've learned that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence was learned through affliction, not happiness. If it ever were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence, the result would make life too trivial to be endurable. That's not the general consensus, is it? Of many who have turned away from God during times of affliction and trials. But trials will always be a part of our life, beloved. But our response to trials plays a very significant part to our endurance in the faith. And there's no doubt that it's difficult to understand how God can be good and wise and sovereign and yet allow the horrible suffering that we see in the world. But to cease to believe in God on account of suffering does not make God cease to exist. And it does not resolve the problem. So our focus here has been in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, to run with endurance the race that has been set before us. And so we need to know how God wants us to respond when we go through trials, when we go through suffering. Sometimes that suffering is brought about by by our own foolish choices. Sometimes suffering happens... Because we live in a fallen world with fallen people. Sometimes suffering happens because people sin against us. And sometimes suffering happens by the hand of God as a correction, as a discipline in our life. And that's the focus here of our text. You'll recall in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12, it's in these first three verses that the author of Hebrews taught us that in order to endure in our faith, we, as we live this Christian life, we needed to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's what we needed to do to be able to endure through these trials. We need to fix our eyes upon Jesus, and we need to prepare for the race, the agonia, the agonizing marathon, not a sprint, not a short little uh, sprint, and then you, then you get to sit up by the side. No, this is a marathon. This is a grueling race chosen for you by God. We should remember those who went before us, all of chapter 11, as our group of imperfect people who never did actually see the promises of God fulfilled in their lifetime, yet they ran their race with endurance all the way to glory. Every one of them. That's why they're in there. We should shed every encumbrance, every weight, anything that would slow us down, And we should get rid of any sin that would entangle us or trip us up in this race. And we should embrace the course 
that God has chosen for us, trusting in him. And once you keep our focus on Jesus, who's the author, the perfect object of our faith, and the perfecter, the one who completed the race as the perfect example of one who trusts in God and who lived that life out perfectly in word, thought, and deed. So remember from last time, point number one, uh, this is in uh, verse four then, as we moved into last week. Point number one last week was, do not forget the Lord's suffering against sin. The author shifts the metaphor from this grueling marathon race now to a boxing match, where to stand and resist temptation to return to the works-based system, which is what they were facing in that little church, weren't they? As the persecution arose, as things heated up, as they were ostracized out of their community, as they were hurting, he said, keep your eyes on Jesus, shed any encumbrance, embrace this race that God has set before you, free yourself from any entanglement of sin, and let's not forget the struggle that Christ showed us. And he shows this boxing match. They were to stand firm. They were to resist. That's what those true words mean. To, and resist what? The temptation. To go back to the old system of sacrifices under the law after they have already made a profession of faith in Christ through grace. They were to stand firm in their faith in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. So here he is calling them to a life of faith, calling them to accept the fact that it's going to be a challenging life and it's going to be a threatening life. Point number two last week. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline. We said last week, usually when we think of discipline, we think of this as a negative. But the word actually means instruction or correction, and it's tied to education. So the Lord is educating us. How does he do that? Through instruction and correction. And the purpose of this correction is to conform us more and more into the image of his son. Romans 8, 29. What does God's, what is our purpose in life? Why does God bring these things into our world? Why do we have to go through these trials and suffering and tribulations? Because it's part of what God uses. It's one of the many provisions that God uses to mold us and shape us into the image of his son. This, from the moment of salvation, You are on a journey, and God is chipping off all the rough spots like a sculptor, purifying you through the fire, testing your faith, conforming you more and more to the image of his son, preparing you, incidentally, for eternity, preparing you for eternity. The discipline of God or the correction we receive may not have anything to do with a specific sin, but more to do with the heart issue that needs correction. And God uses temptations and trials in our lives to strengthen us in our commitment to Jesus Christ. And he uses these trials and these temptations to correct our thinking, to correct sinful beliefs and motivations, to eradicate false idols that we have enthroned over our hearts. And we may despise every single minute of it during the trial, but all of us, if we're honest, learn a lot more about our hearts during trials than we do during times of great success. When you're in the valley, 
at our darkest moments, at the deepest, darkest times in our life, when we're crying out to God as our only hope, oh, we learn a lot about ourselves, don't we? And we learn a lot about our God who is there for us. Point number three, he tells them, do not lose heart when the Lord disciplines you. He said, this is just, this is normal. This is something you should expect. Don't lose heart. So we've seen the first bad reaction to the Lord's correction is to take it lightly. The second bad reaction is to lose heart every time you go through a trial or tribulation. To give up in despair, that's just as bad. And so he gives them a gentle reminder from the Lord that we need to get back on course in our Christian walk. And we should not check out and sink into full despair every time the Lord corrects us. And that brings us to our verses this morning, beginning in verse 6 through 11. But before we go there, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his holy word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the gathering of these dear saints here this morning. Lord, we want to dig deep into your word, and we want it, Lord, to to do what your, what your word does, Lord, and that's to pierce our hearts. Lord, to divide even the thoughts and the intentions of our heart, to shine a bright light upon our hearts here this morning. And Lord, if there's anything displeasing to you, if there's anything not honoring to you, if there's a way that we're responding, if we have a sinful motive or sinful belief, Lord, that we've enthroned somehow, some sinful desire we've enthroned on our hearts, that you would shine your holy light upon that and that we would dethrone that off our hearts and lay it at the foot of the cross. And so, Lord, that's what we hope today this morning. May we not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. May we apply it in our lives in a way that brings you honor and glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You're in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look at verse 6. We're going to read uh, all the way to verse 11, then we'll come back and unpack this. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So the first thing that the author of Hebrews wants us to see in your notes, point number one, is the legitimacy of God's discipline. The legitimacy of God's discipline. Look at verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You see what the author is saying there? 
He's telling us that although often we are discouraged in our experiences of God's correction, that isn't meant to discourage us. It just proves that we are his sons and daughters. The mere fact that he's working in and through your life and has allowed some of these things to come into your life is proof that you are his children. It proves that we are his legitimate children. And that's important that we're legitimate because at the time at the time that he was writing, if you were not a legitimate son, if you were not adopted into the family, if you were not a son by birth, you had no inheritance. And so he's using that to kind of remind us that if you don't have any trials in your life, if there's nothing going on there at all, if you've never been tested by the Lord, I don't know anybody like this, but if there is such a person, that that would be more indicative of a problem in your life as it pertains to God, that he would not be working in and through you. If there's no correction, then we would not be his children. And so he's saying, when you're there and you're discouraged, remember that what God is actually doing when that happens in your life is that he's proving that he loves you and he's proving to you that you are his child. You see, to live the Christian life, you have to understand this greatest privilege we have as adoption into his family. And that the darkest struggles of internal struggles that we have and the hardest discipline, they all go together. We like to say, well, I want God's love and I want God's blessing and I want his encouragement, but I don't want any of this other thing to happen over here. You know, that could be for somebody else. Maybe they need that, but I want a life where I have absolutely no problems, where everything goes my way and where I never have a struggle. And the author of Hebrews is saying, well, that sounds pretty darn good, except that that's not a life of a single believer. Matter of fact, the word of God tells us, if you're striving to live a life of godliness, you will have trials. Not you might have trials, not you could have trials. It's emphatic. You will have trials. Because this is part of the provision that God uses in our lives to conform us more in the image of his son. You know, there was a farmer, he had a weather vane on his barn in which he he wrote, God is love. I'm just thinking, because Eric was talking in Sunday school about about Levi at five years old using the proper grammar, and then I just said, write it. Okay. When friends asked the farmer why he wrote God is love, and he said, this is to remind me. Though no matter which way the wind blows, God is love. When the warm south wind with its soothing and balmy breezes brings showers of blessings, God is love because every good and perfect gift is from above, James 1.17. And when the cold north wind of trial and testing sweeps down upon you, God is love because, Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those who love God. And when the west wind blows hard upon you with its punishing intent, God is love because Hebrews 12, 6, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And when the east wind threatens to sweep away all that you have, God is love because Philippians 4, 19, God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory. Perhaps you're discouraged and disheartened. 
If so, remember, God still loves you. And what you are experiencing has either been sent or it has been allowed by him for your good. Yes, no matter which way the wind is blowing in your life right now, God still cares for you, and God is love. Now look at verses 7 and 8 again then. The, the point the writer is making in these verses again he says, it's for your discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So the point the writer is making in these verses is that a father disciplines only his own children. And this is proof that you are his children. We may feel like disciplining the neighbor's children, but we really shouldn't. They may feel like disciplining ours, to tell you the truth. But we cannot do it. So God's disciplining is proof that we are indeed his children. And all... Listen carefully. All true children of God receive his discipline. Every single one of you receive his discipline. There are none that are exempt. All others who claim to be saved but who have never been corrected are, according to our text, what? Illegitimate children. He's saying those... Those things are so automatic in a believer's life that if you've never had a trial in your life, you've never been tested like that in your, in your faith, that's proof that you're an illegitimate child. You're claiming to be a child of God, but no child of God goes without discipline. That'd be like an earthly parent saying, well, I've never disciplined my children, ever. I've never done that. You're like, oh, Okay. And remember again, in that day, illegitimate children had no inheritance. So to be an heir of the promise of eternal life, make sure that you are a genuine child of God through faith in Christ. And if you are, you will be corrected at some point in your life. If you're his child, then discipline or correction is evidence of his love, not of his neglect and not of his opposition against you. But how do you know if the trials that you're going through is evidence of your being God's true children? Don't believers and unbelievers both go through trials? Well, the answer is in how we respond to trials that come our way. You see, a true child of God submits to God in the trial and seeks to grow in holiness. Where an illegitimate child shrugs it off as bad luck or worse, turns and grows bitter against God. The author of Hebrews wants his church to see God's allowing them to endure hardships in the same light as they would see a loving father use of discipline in raising their own children. He wants them to see it as something that is purposeful, even if at times it is painful. He wants them to see his correction as motivated by his love and his compassion and his purpose in your life. He wants them to see that not as some random act, but rather something purposeful and, dare I say, useful to us. So at the end of the day, the writer of Hebrews wants his readers to see that they should expect what is happening to them. In fact, he wants them to see it as so necessary that if it were absent from their lives, if they were not experiencing any sort of difficulty or hardship, if they went through their entire life without knowing significant hardship, then they would have very every good reason to wonder if God had abandoned them. That's how automatic he wants them to think. 
So contrary to what you might think, it is in the absence of discipline and hardship that would, in the end, prove to be a greater concern than the hardship itself. So, point number one, the legitimacy of God's discipline. Now let's look at our second point in verses 9 to 10, the example of God's discipline. And so in order to reinforce the point, the writer of Hebrews then uses a human analogy of earthly fathers. Let's look at that again. He says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? His point is fairly simple. We respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us and they did the best they could. Why would we not respect God who disciplines us for good and whose best is the best, not merely hoping to be the best. That whatever discipline God gives is perfect. Verse 9, he contrasts the fathers of our flesh, that's the earthly fathers, with the father of our spirits, that's our heavenly father. So that expression, the fathers of our flesh, is focusing on our earthly father's imperfection. Every earthly father falls short in his knowledge of his children and in wisdom and in how to train and discipline them. Amen? Every father. There is no perfect earthly father. But our heavenly father knows each one of us. Every thought, every intention. He created us. He knitted us together in our mother's womb. All of our thoughts, all of our motives... He knows every hair on your head or every hair that used to be on your head. He knows it all. He deals with us in perfect wisdom. And while good fathers always try to act in love, they often fail. But God always acts in love, always seeking our highest good. Good earthly fathers seek to prepare us for life on earth. But God, God is preparing us for eternity. The author's point is that discipline of our earthly fathers was beneficial, even though it was flawed by their own shortcomings. We respected them for it because we can see how we benefit from it, but God's discipline is absolutely perfect. Now, I don't know how you all were raised, but I do know what it was like in our household, in our home, where there was no confusion about sparing, you know, sparing the rod and spoiling the child. They, they had seemed to have settled that issue long before we came along. They were never confused about how they were going to discipline us. Let me just put it that way. And we certainly gave them plenty of reasons to exercise that decision that they had made. And the pattern on our home typically was that one of us would do something really stupid, and then our mother would catch us doing it. She would scold us for whatever it was we were not supposed to be doing. And then if it was really bad, she would always finish with these dreaded words, wait until your father gets home. Oof. That was almost as bad as the actual punishment itself because by the time our father did get home, we had already rehearsed this thing in our minds about a thousand times. We'd convinced ourselves that this time it was truly it. None of us were going to survive. Now, having disciplined my own children, I can tell you that as a father, this is the part of parenting that I never really liked. 
but I understood the necessity of it. And as upset as I would become with my own children, I never took any enjoyment when I needed to discipline them, ever. In fact, the entire reason they were being disciplined is because I loved them so much. And I knew what the long-term consequences of their actions would be. Let me give you an example. One time my children were playing in the front yard. They were about three or four years old. And I was sitting on the front porch watching them. And before they started, I gave them all the ground rules for playing. Because we had a sidewalk and there was a busy street in front. And so I gave them the NGZ, the no-go zone. Don't go past here. Don't go past here. Set it up. Blocked it off. Here you go. And there were cars parked on both sides of our driveway. Sure enough, one time the ball rolled out in the street, and one of my children ran right out there without looking. After I had just talked to them about not doing that. I was halfway down the driveway before the ball broke the plane of the sidewalk because I could see what was going to happen. And I caught her before she could make it to the road. I responded with a very stern warning at eye level, making sure they understood exactly why I was so upset and why they should not go beyond what I had allowed. But guess what happened a few minutes later? That's right. But this time I could see a car coming down the road. Now, I'm not sure what the world record was by Usain Bolt, but I'm sure he could not have beat me to that sidewalk on that day as my heart was racing out of my throat. But I can assure you, I left no doubt with that child the importance of listening to daddy. Now, why did I do that? Was I just sitting on the porch waiting for my child to mess up so I could run over there and punish them? Was that what my goal was that day? No, of course not. I did it because I loved them so much, and I knew what would happen had they proceeded into that street without looking and a car coming down the, coming down the road. How is that any different, beloved, when we rebel against our Heavenly Father, who knows all things, who knows the possibility of all things, who knows the potentiality of the possibility of all things? How is that any different? Yet when he corrects us, we sometimes respond like my four-year-old did. Beloved, God is willing to put up with us being, being misunderstood by us, maybe even disliked by us, at least for a season, because he's a loving father, and he knows this is important. He loves us far too much to shelter us from trials and hardships and the correction, which in his hands become the very means that he providentially works out his will in our lives. What is his will in our lives? To sculpt us and mold us and transform us and shape us into the image of his son. So point number one, we've seen the legitimacy of God's discipline. Point number two, the example of God's discipline. Look at verse 11 here. The fruit of God's discipline. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. That's where you say amen. But sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, instructed by it, corrected by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit 
of righteousness. God's discipline is not easy, and it is never pleasant, my friends. It's not wrong to cry out loudly to God or to weep when you're going through a difficult trial. Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus wept. Look at Hebrews 5, 7. It'll tell you that Jesus cried out. Read the lament Psalms, and you'll hear believers crying out to God. But we need to understand that this correction is designed to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, you heard about righteousness this morning in Sunday school, right? Well, the righteousness in verse 11 is tied to the holiness in verse 10. These two are working together, as you heard about this morning. We didn't plan that. That's just God working in and through the text again. You heard about how the holiness is God the setting apart. God is setting us apart to accomplish his will. And the righteousness is our right standing before God. And there's two aspects of that righteousness, right? There is there's God's imputed righteousness, and that never changes. And then there's God's practical righteousness. That's the part where we yield to his conforming to our will. So you heard that again this morning. Christ is the ultimate example of what it means to be a righteous person in thought and word and deed. A truly righteous person has godly motives and seeks to glorify God in everything. And we need to trust that God is indeed molding and shaping us for our good and his glory. There's a story of a little piece of wood that was once bitterly complaining to its owner who was whittling away at it, gouging it and making holes in it, taking a file well, the one it was cutting to it paid no attention to the stick's protest. He was making a flute out of that piece of wood, and he was too wise to stop just because the piece of wood was complaining. The man said, little piece of wood, without all these rifts and holes, all this cutting, you'd be a stick forever. You'd be a useless piece of kindling. But what I'm doing now may seem as if I'm destroying you, but instead it will change you into a beautiful flute. And your sweet music will charm the souls of many and comfort sorrowing hearts. My cutting you is the making of you, for only thus can you be a blessing to the world. The meaning of this little parable is clear. The flute whose music blended so sweetly in the orchestra, was made a flute only by the knife and the file that filled it with rifts and holes, which seemed to be destroying it. When in actuality, the purpose of the master was that it might become a beautiful instrument to the glory of God. My friends, the Lord is shaping us. Let's be patient. And allow his correction to work in our lives. Maybe you're wondering now, if trials are part of God's correction for us, if they're part of this holiness, is it wrong to seek to get out from underneath them? Is it wrong to try and resolve problems that irritate us? Why not just submit to them if they are designed for our good? The answer is, is it depends on your heart attitude towards the Lord when you're going through the trial. Here's some questions you should ask yourself as you go through a trial in your life. 
Is my heart in submission to God? Am I relating each trial to his love for me? Am I trying to learn the lesson that he intended? When I go through the trial, am I saying, Lord, help me glean from this what you would have me learn from this so that I may be conformed more and more to the image of your son so that I, my life and my response may bring you honor and glory? Am I willing to accept his will even if it doesn't coincide with my will. This is the part that usually trips us up, isn't it? Because we've enthroned our will over our hearts, often above God's will over our hearts. You know, Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. The Apostle Paul asked God to remove this thorn in the flesh, but when God told Paul that his grace was sufficient, Paul was content to live in whatever state God deemed best. Are you truly in submission to God? You've been asked that twice now today, haven't you? Once in Sunday school and now once again here. Are you seeking to learn and grow in holiness through the trial? If so, it is not wrong to ask the Father to remove it, if it be his will, and to take steps to resolve the problem with his leading. Often in his grace and love, he will remove it. But sometimes, beloved, he says, like he told the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And whether he does remove the trial or not, we have to trust that he is our loving father who has our good in view. And if we submit to him, he will produce that peaceful fruit of righteousness in your heart. And that's an important lesson for the little church that was hearing this in the book of Hebrews. But that's an important lesson for our little church here at Portage Bible Church too, isn't it? We need to understand that. Do not waste the opportunity that the Lord brings in your life through trials and hardships. Don't waste that. Even suffering. My friends, if the Lord brings suffering into your life, and all that happened was that you became miserable and bitter, then you waste, you wasted an opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness. You wasted an opportunity to grow deeper into his word. You wasted an opportunity to glorify God to others who will be ministering to you during this time. We don't think about that in our trials, do we? We just think, Lord, get me out of this. Take this away. Make it stop hurting. Make the diagnosis change. Whatever it is, Lord, just get it away from me. Please, please, please. But the author of Hebrews wants us to say, as we truly submit to his will, if we're truly submitted to God's will, then we will say, Lord, glorify yourself in this. May others see your light in and through me. Lord, grow me closer to you that I may know you. Gnosko, I may know you intimately, Lord, through this trial.
Our response to God's loving discipline, his loving correction for us must be to reverently submit, trusting him as our loving, good, wise, sovereign father. To endure the struggle against evil, we must understand what Scripture teaches us about God's loving discipline. Then whether the trial is a major trial or a minor trial, we submit in faith, viewing his correction as a sign of his love. My friends, sometimes, as I said earlier, our sufferings and trials are due to our own fault. Sometimes we just bring them on ourselves. Sometimes they're at the hands of others. Sometimes it's because we live in a fallen world. But sometimes it is God who is lovingly correcting us. The things we experience can be used to bring blessings to others. And though this may bother us, nothing happens by chance to us as believers. Do you understand that? There's nothing that's outside of the sovereignty of God. If there is, then he is no longer sovereign. Tragedies can be blessings in disguise. Disappointments are his appointments. And God uses everything in our life, even the unpleasant circumstances, to transform us more and more into the image of his son. That is our ultimate purpose. To be conformed in the image of his son and to bring glory to God in the process. And this will be an everyday process, beloved. Everyday process until you reach the finish line called glory. God is doing a wonderful work in your life, even though you may not see it. Rejoice. I say rejoice that God is working in and through your life. Trust in him that you must continue to strive against sin. You must not take his instruction lightly. You must not lose heart every time you go through a trial. You trust in him to endure the course God has set before you all the way to the finish line. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know these dear sheep that you have gathered here together today. I know this flock well, Lord. But you know them even better. Lord, some of them are having trials in their life. Some of them are having temptations in their life. Some of them are having suffering in their life. Father, some of that is due to some poor decisions. Some of that is due because someone has sinned against them. Some of that is because they live in a fallen world filled with fallen people. But some of it, Lord, is your hand. And so, Lord, I pray that we would go through these trials and cry out to you, not just for relief, not just to take it away, Not just to take it away in our timing, but rather, Lord, that you would be glorified in it. That others would see the light of Christ in us and through us when we go through a trial. That we wouldn't respond how the world responds when they go through a trial. But Lord, Lord, you'd be glorified. And in the process that we would trust that you love us. 
and that you cause all things to happen for good for those who love you. And even though we may not think that whatever you've brought into our life is good, Lord, we trust that you will use it for our good and for your glory. Lord, help us to have that kind of hard attitude for all here today. Some are in the midst of trials. Some are finishing up trials. Lord, some are, are, are heading into trials. But you know exactly what we need in exactly the right measure and exactly the right amount of time to ensure that Jesus Christ is enthroned in our hearts. May that be our heart attitude today, Lord, in whatever state we're in. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.